Welcome to Health Hackers episode 54. Now most of us are familiar with the term OCD. We know it stands for obsessive compulsive disorder. It might make you think of people washing their hands over and over or checking the front door is locked again and again, but that is not the complete picture. There are many ways in which OCD presents itself, including one that's been nicknamed Pure O or purely obsessional, where the sufferer can find themselves caught up in mental ruminations, checking memories, arranging thoughts, and analyzing lots of what-if scenarios. Pure O is what we'll be focusing on with today's special guest. Psychotherapist India Haler has been working in the field of OCD for 17 years across centers in London and New York. India conquered her own obsessive compulsive disorder and is the founder of OCD Excellence, a body that trains other OCD specialist therapists. As always, listeners and viewers, anything you hear or see on Health Hackers should not be considered medical or personal advice. You know the score, always speak to your provider about your concerns. Now, India, welcome. <gasps> yes, great to be here. Thanks, Gemma. Well, I'm so pleased you were able to make time to talk to me because I know how busy you are and I want to tell everyone that we met over Instagram where there is a strong OCD community that I personally find very comforting. You put out brilliant posts from the OCD Excellence account. And I'm wondering, have you experienced people getting in touch after they see your posts to say, oh wow, I think I have OCD? Oh God, totally, all the time, Gemma. I know, and we refer them to our, we've got a free online assessment, so we can give them a rough score. In fact, we score them according to subtype. So yes, they do get in touch. And unfortunately, a lot of them ask very specific questions on Instagram about their own OCD. And that's really tough because we're not allowed to answer it. Yeah, difficult. So do you remember when you discovered that you had OCD? Will you tell us a little bit about your experiences with it? I can, I can. So I remember as a child being fairly anxious as a, as a small child. And I think I must have been about 10, maybe 11. And 11 always sticks in my mind. So 11 is this magic number for OCD. Uh, lots of my clients will say my first experience was at 11. So at 11 years old, my aunt died. And I can remember going to bed the night before and seeing some shadows on my wall. And then the next day, connecting her dying with the shadows I'd seen before I went to sleep. And, and then for the foreseeable future after that, not being able to sleep unless there were no shadows on the wall, no lights throwing shadows. And I also remember uh, coughing three times before I went to sleep so that I didn't die. So that was really early on. And... I, I probably was 11, I could have been a year or so younger, but it definitely stuck in my mind that I associated people I loved or cared for dying if I didn't do certain things. And would you class those symptoms as being pure O or being the more traditional OCD that we think of? Definitely more in the traditional camp. So what you can see is I had an obsession followed by compulsions, having to avoid to check or repeat things, and that's common with the more traditional types of OCD. So the obsession is the fear, the thing that you keep thinking about, and then the compulsion is the behavior you do to try and prevent it, to keep yourself safe. And in my case, keep others safe, usually, which is what we call responsibility OCD. 
So it's quite complicated. Yeah, and there are uh, many subtypes and themes. I know we've spoken about them before in an Instagram Live. Can you tell us a bit about the, the kind of themes that you see that people are dealing with uh, when it comes to Puro and OCD? Yes, so for the more traditional types of OCD, the most common subtype is responsibility. And so here's where it gets complicated. So responsibility OCD is when we put the welfare and happiness of others above our own. So there's this hyper responsibility for the whole world sometimes. So they're worried about their nearest and dearest. They're worried about their friends. They're worried about people they don't know. And they're worried about the world. And that can even manifest metaphysically. So that some of my clients will be worried about people who have died or they've not met around the world being affected adversely by things that they do. So that's the big one. So I'd say 70% of my clients suffer with responsibility and sometimes it's disguised as contamination. So if it's contamination OCD, then those that are worried about contaminating others will actually have responsibility OCD. So the other types that are more traditional are religious OCD, where my clients worry about God, you know, condemning them to hell or disrespecting God. Then there's relationship OCD, um, which can be purely obsessive. And then we have things like um, what we call scrupulosity. So that's worrying about doing things that are illegal, doing things that are wrong, being arrested. And of course, we have good old contamination um, plus some other subtypes, metaphysical OCD is when we worry about existential things. So worrying about why we exist, worrying about um, the, uh, dying, worrying about what happens to us when we die, things that are otherworldly. Even I've had clients worrying about being kidnapped by aliens and transported to another universe. So that comes up with pure O. As I've said, again, it's more complicated. So it's kind of like a Venn diagram. So with purely obsessive, they can have all those other obsessions, but their compulsions won't be physical. So they won't be doing the things that you tend to see in the media because they're more visual of checking, repeating, uh, walking, uh, you know, walking backwards and retracing, cleaning, um, switching light switches on and off. Pure O is going on in here. So there are compulsions. So I just want to lay that kind of fallacy to bed there and say, well, you do have compulsions with Pure O, but they're all going on inside. And they will be things like checking, repeating, counting, praying, but there's no visual. So it's, it's very what we call covert rather than overt. Could you give us some examples of that mental checking and compulsions? Of course. So we have counting. So people will do things in their head a certain number of times. So they'll have a lucky number. Now mine was four, but six comes up, seven comes up. So they'll be thinking of things in their head a number of times. And it's their kind of lucky number. And associated with that lucky number will be unlucky numbers. It'll be quite a complicated system. Then we have things like neutralizing, which is going on in their head. So if they have a bad thought or they think something that's negative, they will have to replace that thought with a good thought. So let me give you an example. So let's say 
This came up a few weeks ago with a client. If they uh, are worried about um, something health related, so a lump or getting cancer or a brain tumor, which crops up a lot, they might have to visualize in their head the healthiest person they can think of. And that would be their neutralizing, their undoing of the negative thought. Um, then we have people who go over in their head what they're going to say before they say it. So there will be a distinct pause. So you'll ask them a question and there will be a pause. And what they're doing is they're ordering and arranging what they're going to say, which will be based on various criteria. Some can be, I can't say those words. Some will be the order they say the words, or they might be filtering out the words they don't want to say. I also have a client that has a whole list of words they don't say because they're associated with negative things. So he's just working out his sentence to make sure it doesn't include any of those. And that's difficult sometimes because if the words and you've got 20 or 25 of those words that are commonly used, that's a tough exercise. Um, they can also be doing things like going over what you've said or going over a scenario in their head to double check their memory of it or whether there was anything in that scenario that might affect uh, their, their OCD. So there's lots of things. So it kind of falls into the same kind of categories of repeating, checking, um, those kinds of things and ordering and arranging, but it's going on internally. Um, and I think I said to you last time, I had a client that would I, I used to be in an office and the wall behind me was, was a, one of those great American exposed brick walls. And she had a very complicated ritual. She's an incredibly bright client. She would have a very complicated formula of analyzing the bricks. So she would sort of count them all, divide them by a certain number, multiply them by something else, and then do some other iteration to them. And she would do all that before she answered any question. Can you also have a sensory type of pure O? So a fear or an obsession around avoiding certain sounds or feelings? Definitely. When we have something, when we have that or something related to the body, which we call somatic OCD. So let me give you a couple of examples. So sensory um, could be certain smells, colours, um, and also kinds of sounds, even music um, can cause real problems. And then we also have a thing that occurs quite a lot with people with OCD, which is called misophonia, which is when people with OCD respond really strongly to people, the sounds of people eating. And it's, it's really profound. I mean, it's quite a problem. So I have it mildly, but I've known clients where you literally can't be crunching or making any sounds near them because they just cannot deal with it. So that's one of them as well. And then we have somatic um, puro, but that will be an obsession with something that's bodily related. So they're blinking, their voice, their heartbeat or their breathing. 
there are no specific rituals, but they're constantly monitoring that or they're swallowing. So those are very unusual. They're quite unusual, but they, uh, but they could come up as what we call, so you don't only, you tend not to have just one type of OCD, you'll tend to have a mixture. So they can also come up as what we call secondary subtypes. So they, they're not the primary, the main OCD, they kind of go alongside it. When you're meeting new clients as a therapist, is it important for you to figure out whether the client is dealing with puro or traditional OCD, or are you just treating the whole thing, or is it often mixed anyway? That's a really, really good question, actually. We do a, a quite an unusual assessment. So the traditional assessment is that a therapist will write down a collection of obsessions followed by a collection of compulsions. We do do that. But what we also do um, is we look for what we call their critical A. So we're looking for their drivers. So I think we're quite unique in that aspect is that we're already looking for their OCD MO, their modus operandi, their, their, their drivers, you know, just like you get drivers on your computer for your printer. We're looking for their OCD drivers. So what we're really interested in is what's motivating them to do the compulsion because Puro is simply referring to a basket of compulsions. The obsessions can be very similar. So, so we're seeing the Puro as, as compulsion, as a, as a set of symptoms, as compulsion-based. So we're much more interested in what's driving them to do that. And then the treatment is, is the same. Um, the kind of treatment we deliver, the format, is the same for Puro and for traditional OCD. But what trips therapists up who aren't specialists in OCD is um, there's, a, there's a huge emphasis with treating OCD on the behavior work. And it's much easier to set behavior work for someone that has contamination fears or something visual because it's, you know, the desensitization, the exposure to that worry is easier to do when it's physical. It's quite difficult to do that and to work out some tasks when it's mental because you can't stop someone thinking. And I always give the analogy is that, you know, there's a very big addictive habitual element to OCD. Um, of course, it's, it's, it's mental, it's not substance-based. But when you get someone who's an alcoholic or a drug abuser, when they go into rehab, they are abstaining physically from something. You know, you can actually put them in a room and not give them access to those substances. With OCD, I can't stop my clients thinking and I can't stop them in the beginning doing those mental rituals. So that's where it becomes tricky for people who don't work with OCD a lot. How problematic can it become for somebody who's dealing with pure O? And what I mean by that is, I wonder if there's someone listening now who might think, well, what's wrong with checking memories or pausing before you answer a question? That's not disruptive to life, but I'm sure you've seen the other side of that. Yes, I, I have. and. Um, it's quite interesting. So in the UK, clients present later, generally, with their OCD. So I would say I mostly deal with moderate to severe cases of OCD. When I worked in the US, people present, clients present a lot earlier. 
And, and I don't know what that is. I think there are some sociological or cultural, you know, factors involved. But so here in the UK, for sure, by the time clients see me, they are spending a, a huge proportion of their day obsessing. And, and, and I think at the stage where they're saying, well, this is a mild inconvenience, they probably don't present for therapy here. But, you know, I'll speak to somebody and say, especially with relationship OCD, and if it's, you know, and that could be pure, pure in terms of the compulsions. I'll say to them, how, how much of the day are you spending thinking about your relationship? They could say to me, oh, 90 to 95%. It only goes when I'm asleep. So, so I think it would be, if someone's functioning in their life and they're coping and it's a mild inconvenience, certainly in the UK, they probably don't present for therapy and, and I wouldn't see them. They're not my client base. Um, but, the, but the ones I do see, there's a distinct uh, impact on their ability to function in their work, in their social life, in their relationships, you know, in their, in their home life. It's, it's it's you know it's noticeable it's disabling and if someone listening is wondering why can't they just stop thinking about it the thing um would you explain why they can't yes yeah, so now we're getting quite clinical so we're not absolutely certain what's happening in the brain okay we you know, and, and we now go to the kind of the, the, the nature versus nurture. So we know that the origins of OCD are probably genetic, but we know that's only part of the, of the answer. We think there are other factors involved. There's certainly a lot of research done around PANDAS, which is an autoimmune response to a strep infection. So that would be an ear, nose or throat infection usually. Um, so we think that's involved in some childhood onset cases of OCD. So there is a biological imperative. And then there, there are, of course, we need to do more research because we think there are other factors involved, which are, which are biological. So these are the nature part of the OCD. And then if we involve the nurture part. So we think that the origins of OCD are biological, but we suspect the type you get is environmental because it does seem to be just bad luck, whatever it is that you associate with your first attack of OCD and your first experience. And then of course it can change. So you can get in, you know, you can get on top of one and then it can morph into this other. So the reason it's so difficult and so what we call intractable and difficult to treat and it's, it's very prone to relapse is because there's a biological element and then the client sets up a very serious habit. And this habit seems life-threatening. So when you explain to someone that doesn't have OCD that touching a door handle or not touching it seems like life or death that's really how it is so that's why they can't stop thinking and then you've got to remember that the way that the human brain works is that our natural impulse is to when we feel bad is to work out why how to get rid of it and then get rid of it now that works very nicely outside 
in your life. So if your if your heating isn't working, you work out why your heating's not working. You call the plumber in. Good. Generally, that's the problem solving solution. So people try to use that strategy inside their head, and they'll say, "Why am I feeling bad? I need to work out how to get rid of it, and then I need to get rid of it." That process actually cements the habit further because we know that whatever you're trying to avoid emotionally and all the strategies you've developed and then they're ingrained habitually because the, the discomfort and the anxiety, the guilt is so strong. We know that that actually leads to them thinking more, analyzing more, evaluating com and comparing more. So the very strategies that are ingrained from a very early age actually count against you. And before long, you are carrying out a very serious habit day in, day out, and even sometimes in your sleep, in your dreams. So that's why they can't just stop. It's like the pink elephants. I say to you, Gemma, think of pink elephants. And then now don't think of pink elephants. You'll be like, what, what, that's all I can think of. Would you give us some more examples of what that constant habit would look like? You mentioned the relationship OCD. So what thoughts are going through the mind of someone with pure O relating to a relationship? Yeah, very interesting. So with relationship OCD, and this is one of those OCDs that seem to have developed and be culturally based. So um, when I first started practicing way back in the early 2000s, um, we, we either didn't know about it or, or um, it, it wasn't presented. I think I was one of the first therapists to talk about this in the media relationship OCD. So I was getting these clients present with these obsessive worries about their relationship. So what they might be thinking and what we've seen develop over time is the core problems are, are the same. The obsession is, is this person right for me? Am I in love? Are they the one? Uh, or sometimes what am I losing and what other opportunities are there out there for me? But um, so they would tend to do, um, especially if it's not a physical compulsion and, and not checking online and going through all the relationship questionnaires, which can happen, they will tend to be checking their partner's appearance or characteristics. So I've even had clients who will be sitting across from their partner, checking their eyebrows, listening to the sound of their laugh, checking whether they're amusing or not, obsessing about what their friends might think of them and then mentally comparing but perhaps visually just checking what other couples are doing and their body language and how they look so there's never any purely obsessive OCD there's always some slight physical checking and rituals going on um, they also might be going over conversations they've had with them in their head they might be going back to um, remember their partners they've had in the past, were those partners more suitable? Uh, were those partners uh, better for them? Or is there someone out there and imagining what that person uh, might, might, might be, might look like, um, how they might operate and behave, who might be better than them? And of course, the big one is, am I feeling love? Am I feeling the love with this person? And then trying to feel that feeling and of course love is not a feeling you know it's 
something you do, you know, of course, there's sexual attraction, which they're feeling. And again, that gets wrapped up in this idea of love. So they would be checking sometimes their bodily, physical responses to their partner. Am I finding them sexually attractive? Am I feeling it in here? Uh, does Is this love? Uh, am I feeling all those feelings you read about, the tingling, the happiness when they come home? You know, am I, you know, is their voice resonating with me? All those things are what we call covert compulsions related to relationship OCD. And with Pure O, when you said the compulsions, the, the checking is mental. What could those checking behaviours mentally look like? And what's the fear? What's the motivation to do them? Do they believe that something bad will happen if they don't keep checking, keep reviewing, keep ruminating? Good point. Well, there's two drivers of responsibility generally. One is, if it's more responsibility-based, I'm not in love, they aren't the one for me, and I'm leading them on and they're gonna be hurt. So I'm gonna to have to end it. And some of them do, because they just cannot deal with the, the, the obsessing. So that's one area. I'm gonna to have to end it, I'm gonna hurt them, and I'm gonna feel guilty forever, and they're not gonna get over it. And even worse, they might do something or be mentally damaged, emotionally damaged. Um, so that will be one area. The other area that tends to drive relationship OCD is this idea that by being with this person I'm missing out my life is not going to work out in the way that I thought it might they're either holding me back or there's someone better for me out there so I'm missing out so there's this idea of losing or missing out that drives that obsession as well how do you treat pure O I know you mentioned at the start it's different to treating someone who has physical compulsions and checking behaviors because you can work on those work on the person physically not doing them so how do you work on the ones in the head well this is where this kind of separates the, the men from the boys um, in terms of therapy you've really got to concentrate quite hard on their drivers you've got to identify them correctly and then you've got to work with them so you need to change the belief that either um, you know, this person has to, with, certainly with Puro, uh, or in, in, the, in the example of relationship OCD, you've got to work on their belief that um, it's okay, even if this person is perfect, and then you work on the idea of love, love isn't a feeling and all those things. So you'll work on their core beliefs to make their core beliefs more flexible, more adaptable, less dogmatic, less rigid, so that they can see that they don't have to adhere absolutely 100% to their beliefs of how they should be and their partner should be or the world should be if it's another you know another type of puro so the tighter a person with ocd holds their beliefs the more driven they are and the stronger the compulsions are to try and get rid of it and the discomfort so that's that's one thing you work on you can also do behavior work with pure O, okay? You can do things like interrupting the thought. You can do things like um, uh, 
stopping the we don't do stop thoughts because that doesn't that doesn't um, work but we can also flood them so they can do a mental flooding of their worst fears and then obviously before they've done the flooding you teach them the anxiety management so you and then of course what you do is you teach them to observe those thoughts so they don't have to do the mental ritual and actually, once they're sat opposite you um, in a therapy room, it's actually not too difficult to do that because I now have, I've built up this sense of, I can almost hear them thinking. So I know when I've lost them, I know what their eyes do. I can see that I'm losing them. So I keep trying, I keep bringing them back to the present. So I'll set them a behavior task, bring them back to the present, generate a just uncomfortable thought, bring them back to the present interrupt their chain of thought, get them to do things. So there's like, you can still do exposure work, you can still do behavior work. You can also do physical exposure work because even when it's pure O, once you know what their fear is, you can actually expose them to maybe movies about their fear or videos or scenarios. So you can still do all that and get them to write things down that are very triggering. You can you can still do that work. You just need to know what you're really dealing with. I really admire that one of your hiring criteria for therapists at OCD Excellence is that they must have personal experience with OCD. Why was that important to you? Wow, that's our, you know, that's really our USP. That drives me forward. And that's because, and it's quite controversial this view, is that Having OCD myself, I really believe that it is a bizarre, complicated cross matrix of obsessions and compulsions that can't really be completely understood by someone that doesn't have it. Now, I'm not in any way saying that those people, those therapists, those psychiatrists, those professionals without OCD cannot help OCD. I'm just saying that we're bringing uh, this component of empathy into the treatment that we think adds another perspective. So say, let's, let's look at the 12 steps model. So I don't think the 12 steps model is entirely appropriate for OCD, hence we don't use it. But I do think there are aspects of that format of therapy and that format of recovery that does work. So when you go into AA, you're being but your sponsor, your mentor, and everyone around you is either recovering or recovered. So you can't really turn around and say, number one, the system doesn't work or, it, it, or you don't understand how I'm feeling. So, so I do think that creating that therapeutic bond, that clinical bond with your client is strengthened by this idea that actually my therapist has been through it themselves. And not only that, they're using these techniques day in, day out because OCD is lifespan and we still have our moments. So they know that we're walking the talk. And in the way that that's valuable and empowering in AA, it's quite empowering when you're dealing with OCD, which is a lifespan, incurable, chronic condition with high relapse rates. And so you're not only do you understand what your client's going through and you remember your own discomfort, you can really empathize. And it's very difficult for your client to say, 
you have no idea what I'm dealing with. We do say, well, we don't have an exact idea, but we have some powerful idea. And it kind of helps with setting behavior work because I will, you know, my clients obviously will, you know, setting them the work, they'll often try to circumvent it. And that's okay. That's understandable. No judgment there. But I'll know what to set because I know what they're thinking. Let me give you an example. So if I have a contamination client and, and, and we do a task whereby we go into somewhere that's contaminated and we say, I'll say to them, right, I'm going to get a piece of plain paper or tissue and we're going to kind of put it on surfaces that are contaminated. Then I'm going to ask you, um, and this will be at a you know, fairly medium stage of their therapy, we'll get them to do this on day one. Put this in your, in your handbag and carry it around with you and bring it back to our session next week. So I know they'll be thinking, yeah, I'm going to throw that piece of loo roll, toilet roll or paper straight in the bin, not carrying that dirty thing around all, all, all week. And I'll, I'll just bring a new bit back next week. So I know that, that I would think like that. So what I would do is I would kind of get the tissue uh, and, and I'll sign my signature all over it. So they have to bring that piece back next week. Even if they don't carry it all week, it's going to be in their handbag when they leave and when they come the week after. So I think like a person with OCD. I have that mindset. I know why someone's driving around around about 15 times worrying that they've killed someone. I know that. And it, it does help, I think. When you said that pure O is incurable... Will you give us some sense of reassurance? I know you don't like the word reassurance because it doesn't help anyone with OCD, but will you give some kind of um, explanation or description of how, although someone might have it forever, they will find ways of getting on with their life so it isn't as intrusive or problematic? Yes, absolutely. Well, as yet, it's not curable. Uh, there are some therapists that say it is, but it, it really isn't. And none of the research that's been done at UCLA Medical School and all the great places or Harvard um, have come up with any evidence that it's curable yet. But the prognosis isn't bad. So it's very manageable. So I want to give people hope that it's incredibly manageable. I also like to focus on the positive aspects of having OCD. So I'd like to say that people with OCD are highly intuitive, they're sensitive, they're usually, they're very usually, although they seem to have discounted this recently, but I believe it's true. I believe people with OCD are generally quite intelligent. And they also care a great deal about others. And they're artistic, they're creative, they're uh, perfectionist. And if they're using and harnessing those aspects of their OCD. I think it makes them into quite successful or powerful or potentially successful and powerful people in their own world. And I think there's a reason why, you know, when I speak to, I've spoken and, and helped some celebrities and successful people, they're using a lot of their OCD and they don't realize it in their career. You know, um, David Beckham is often mentioned. And there's a reason why he practiced, you know, 100, 200, 300 free kicks a day 
Um, so I want to encourage people to say there are aspects of OCD which are really positive and we can absolutely concentrate on that and give people hope. So it's manageable with work. It is a habit. Uh, it's, there are aspects which, which I use every day and I'm not sure even if a cure came out that I would actually have the cure. I'm good friends with my OCD. You know, I, oh. I celebrate it. I'm, I'm there with it. I know that the positive aspects I use every day to my advantage as a therapist. So I'm not really going to jump on board any technique or intervention, medical or otherwise, that, that might be clinical or otherwise, that might be a cure. So I, I want to really emphasize that and, and have people with OCD understand that they're kind of like a Ferrari. You know, they're highly sensitized, high performing people, but they're really not learning how to drive their car. So when they crash, it tends to have more implications. So that's the analogy I give my younger clients when they, you know, feel quite despairing about having this lifelong condition. But look, a lot of conditions like cold sores or, you know, the type 2 diabetes, the less serious, there's lots of conditions that are asthma that, that are not curable but they're manageable they are manageable and with the right techniques and the right skills the prognosis is great and look OCD is largely invisible I mean it probably is worse to have some condition that's incurable that really hampers you physically or it's visual with OCD it can be hidden it can be covert we can still talk about it but it's, you know, it's, it's not the worst thing. And living with OCD is all about accepting imperfection sometimes, isn't it? It really is. And I say, Gemma, look, you know, living with OCD, a bit like an emotional roller coaster. But, but isn't it great to have the highs and lows than just kind of live at this kind of straight line? I, I don't mind the highs and lows. I'm, I'm kind of on board with that you know, the full gamut of, of the emotional spectrum. I'm, I'm good with that. And on the positive traits of people living with OCD, I would also add that we are punctual and we are cautiously safe drivers. Absolutely, we are. And, you know, I'm working with those in the OCD world. When I get in a room with other therapists and psychiatrists and I say, listen, my clients are punctual, if they're ever late due to OCD, they apologize. Um, they always, you know, they're always worried about um, those aspects. That, you know, they'll show up at, at a session and say, India, how are you? You know, they, they care. So it's a really great population of people. I feel lucky and privileged to be working with people with OCD who are fantastic people. So if someone is watching or listening and they've been suffering with the kinds of pure O symptoms or any OCD symptoms that we discussed today, um, what should they do? Is there a central OCD body where people can get more information from? Well, they can certainly try us at OCD Excellence. I have a blog. I talk about, you know, lots of subject matter, um, you know, OCD related. But also there's a couple of charities. There's OCD Action in the UK and there's the OC Foundation in the US and they've got lots of information there. So I think they might be ocdf.org, but they're great. So they're an international body. And then we have OCD Action in the UK where they can go there. But on Instagram, 
I'm so heartened to see, as you are, Gemma, that there's tons of valuable information about OCD on Instagram or social media in, in a way there really wasn't before. And I, I look at few posts where I think, well, that's probably not quite right. Most of them I look at and go, yeah, you've nailed it. That pretty much is correct. Yeah, and I think a lot of the people looking at them feel the same way. Um, health hackers viewers and listeners, I will post links to India's OCD Excellence Instagram and website in this episode summary text. If you go to the OCD Excellence website, as India mentioned, there's that blog on there. It's brilliant. India's written about all kinds of aspects of living with OCD. India, thank you so much. You're doing such brilliant work helping people to manage a disorder that they're sometimes too afraid to speak about. Would you say that's true? I think it is true. I think they are, but we're getting better. We're getting there, Gemma, and it's an absolute pleasure. I feel lucky to be able to talk about it, and I feel lucky to be helping people with OCD every day. It's my life. Oh, it's wonderful to speak to you. Everybody watching and listening, that is it. See you next time. Bye-bye.